you hit the apex this week on the week of State of Origin, the Rugby League showdown between New South Wales and Queensland as always. And the Canadian Grand Prix also. So hard to think that we had some F1 action happening as well with all the build-up towards um, the rugby. But yeah, as always, I'm Jawad, joined by Baden today. Um, but yeah, we've got to look across the Atlantic Ocean because we've got the 7th round of the Formula 1 on um, this weekend with, um, yeah, the Canadian Grand Prix. Yeah, it's kind of been an anonymous build-up, you might say, probably since Monaco. It's been one of the quieter off off weeks between races and this one it's a bit of that unique dog leg across the Atlantic and I think it's quite an important one for for Ferrari really if Mercedes as in previous years get the edge here then they've really um, turned it around on what we've been looking at coming into the European season. Yeah indeed so as far as this year's championship is concerned we've got a unique situation you could say with the top three Tied for three, um, for two wins apiece, you could say. I had written down three wins, but we haven't gone that far yet um, in the year. So, yeah, um, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Ricciardo are race winners for this year. Uh, locked in for three wins apiece um, and 38 points spread across the um, three drivers as far as um, points are concerned and whatnot. And we asked this last week if Daniel Ricciardo is a championship contender in this title fight just yet he's 38 points behind um lewis hamilton it has to be said um with two wins to his name but you know i guess that retirement that he had to his name after uh, was it baku whatever we had that collision with his teammate um does that take away from it or not or you know given the fact that let's say lewis hamilton has a dnf against his name or sebastian vettel does this put um, Daniel Ricciardo in full contention or not so I guess that's a question that this weekend we're going to answer with the way things go. Yeah considering he's probably had one arm tied behind his his back there it's all the more laudable that he's even in this uh, mindset to, for contention obviously it need to be another at least 10 points or ideally within that race victory to, to make it realistic, but if he can have a good run consistent up to the mid-year break and perhaps uh, Ferrari and Mercedes have its own issues at some point, then he'll be right right in it really when it uh, really counts, I guess, when we uh, get back on the road again in September. Yeah, it'll be about stealing as many points as we can um, in that uh, Red Bull car, but um, looking at Lewis Hamilton, then he's chasing... The uh, legendary Michael Schumacher's record here of seven wins around the Canadian Grand Prix circuit. And he's already had three wins in a row here. Can he make it an unprecedented unprecedented fourth win? And that's going to be the key question, I guess. So, yeah, um, six wins for Lewis around there. He just seems unstoppable every time he comes here to the Circus Gilles Villeneuve. And then, yeah, for three wins in a row since, I guess, 2014 when he had that reliability problem and we saw... Ricardo go on and win there. Um, yeah, if he can win four on a bounce, that'll be incredible. It's not hard to foresee at all. It could be one of those weekends, a bit like uh, Barcelona, where Mercedes just from the outset uh, eke away that advantage and, and really they're um, unstoppable and it might be who's contending for third. Yeah, like, uh, as you say, Barcelona, where we saw a dominant display from Lewis Hamilton, and then we saw then two wins in a row for him uh, with Baku and Barcelona on the bounce. But at the same time, you know, when we see it being uh, one of Lewis's favourite circuits, you could say it's not been 
too good for Sebastian Vettel. Not a very good happy hunting ground, you could say. Despite the fact that Ferrari's been the most winningest team, they've won 11 races there as a manufacturer um, in the history of the Formula 1 Championship, 13, including the two wins before the Canadian Grand Prix was an actual championship race. So um, what does Seb have to do this time around to, to get a bit of a break? I guess 2011 was a chance for him to win. I love bringing up 2011 because it was one of the best races there in Canada and Jensen Button got to go win that on the final lap there um, in the in those harsh conditions. I guess anyone who stayed up and watched the entirety of that race would have been rewarded. But uh, yeah, Seb only has that 2013 victory to his name there uh, in um, Canada. So if he can win this one, that would be good for him and for Ferrari. He was... Uh, back on the podium last time around in Monaco so yeah they'll be looking for getting back onto top step of the podium yeah I think for Vettel he might half be hoping that someone else there can insert themselves ahead of Lewis Hamilton just for the the fact that it's not a circuit that's come naturally to him and nor Ferrari in in recent years they haven't really had much to to uh, talk about any time in the past decade certainly since uh, the Michael Schumacher era it's hard to recall them having much success around here it just doesn't play into their their cars characteristics each season so i think that if anything it could be red bull's opportunity notwithstanding ricardo's grid penalty there if he can still capitalize early on and um all that talk about renault with the upgrades there might be able to to boost him and, and who knows about max verstappen if he can finally keep a clean sheet if, if he can actually capitalize for once yeah, well, Daniel Ricciardo, you've jumped the gun there a little bit with the grid penalty news, so that's probably one of the big talking points coming into the weekend, the fact that um, off the back of his win in Monaco, he's got that grid penalty um, to uh, look forward to because of that MGUK that failed for him at the Monaco Grand Prix. So, yeah, he'll be dropping at least 10 places, you'd think, for this race, for this race which is going to be pretty painful. But then again, you know, he won here in 2014. He inherited it. It's a circuit that, I guess, is kind, I guess, for overtaking and whatnot. So if he's up for it on the day... Um you know, the worst, oh, well, the best he can start is P11 on the grid. So, yeah, we could hopefully see some good overtaking from him. Yeah, again, he's one of the most enthralling in combat like that. And even if it's not going to be for a podium placing, he always does it so fairly. And it's it's almost part of the the silver lining of, of the challenge, I guess, for him to be down the order. And it'll make uh, Sunday's viewing, if nothing else, um, something to look out for. Exactly, but um, apart from the top three guys in the championship, I guess, we've got to look at the next three, and the next three are yet to win a race, you could say, and these are not people who haven't won a race yet in their careers, but Kimi Raikkonen, Max Verstappen, Valtteri Bottas, I mean, Verstappen you already touched on before, just probably needs a clean race and whatnot, but um, the other guys, uh, the the Finns, as we uh, say, Valtteri Bottas and Kimi Raikkonen, Two proven race winners, yet to, well, one of them a world champion, um, yet to win a race this year. Is it their time, perhaps? Oh, Bottas by right should have the one at least, and Kimi Raikkonen's probably been been a bit unfortunate the way that the tactics have conspired against him, but, but certainly for for Bottas, he, he's been right there or thereabouts, and he's just not, not had the luck at all, so... This is one, really, and we could see as well at Austria, as he did last season, really coming into his own. Yeah, so, you know, given that 
this has been a strong circuit for Mercedes in the past and if something happens to Lewis Hamilton and by some chance he's not on it then yeah Bottas certainly a piece there that could um, pick up those uh, pieces that uh, he leaves behind does Lewis so we'll look at I guess Pirelli and the tyres and everything for this weekend so Mercedes a little bit conservative you could say considering that every time we do get to Canada it is a bit on the warm side and everything Um, so Mercedes you know as predicted I guess brings those conservative tyre choices they've got the three super softs uh, five ultra softs and five hyper softs compared to Ferrari and Red Bull who've gone with one less super soft tyre they've gone with eight uh, sorry, with three ultra softs and eight hyper softs. So favoring that softer tyre that they used in Monaco as well. Perhaps we'll get to see more of it um, on display this time around in in Canada. But um, yeah, you know, is that going to what is that what it's going to come down to come race day strategy? Oh, I'd hope in lieu of the past few races where, again, safety cars probably nullified uh, the equation. Monaco, it's never really a a factor as such but Ferrari clearly they've been a bit more ambitious this year and it's just about executing at the the right time and probably getting a car on that front row uh, Sebastian Vettel ideally needs to be second at worst uh, into turn one on Sunday and then uh, let the pace of the the car hopefully do its thing but uh, again going on past seasons it's really uh, something they're going to have their work cut out to do against Mercedes, which is just bulletproof at Montreal. Yeah, it seems so. And even last year, I think we did see, for most part of the race, that Seb was the quicker car, but Lewis ended up just getting himself ahead. But um, this year, we're going to have a third DRS zone on hand as well, which perhaps is going to come into to play as well for those guys at the front um, between turn seven and eight um, with a detection point being at turn five and I guess it came into question earlier this year when um, we saw it introduced at the Australian Grand Prix the third DRS zone and I guess at Albert Park it's very difficult to overtake as it is but um, at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve um, we do get a little bit more overtaking so I guess with that third DRS zone will that help with the action hopefully um, you'd expect? Yeah, think if yeah, cars can obviously uh, execute right and harvesting unlike with all that talk we had maybe uh, Australia we had the, the theory of a third DRS zone ended up being at China wasn't it that they added or was it Bahrain where they had the third DRS no, zone no it was previously? it was at Australia that was it well that one since was then since then we didn't have any oh there we go in that case yeah all that talk I guess and this is one where they felt probably quite rightly similar characteristics to Albert Park that it um, is really justified yeah, so um, given that, but um, as I said before, yeah, perhaps more overtaking opportunities here than Albert Park with the wider characteristics of the track, but still a challenge, I guess, regardless with the Waller champions coming in before the finish line, but um, moving it on anyway to the midfield and everything as well, and um, I guess when you look at that, we've got Fernando Alonso, who's celebrating a milestone here this weekend with 300 Grand Prix um, under his belt. But he's come out earlier in the week and said that he's concerned with the power deficit that he's going to have. Oh, he said this for the last three, four years anyway. Um, but the power deficit that he's going to have to the front runners, I guess this time speaking of the Renault power unit um, versus his rivals. And I guess, you know, it's a big few weeks coming up for Alonso anyway as we look forward to the 24-hour Le Mans, which we'll talk on anyway in the digest a bit later on. But yeah, um, Alonso is saying that, yeah, with the 
the straights here and now three DRS zones, I guess, as well that we've got. Um, McLaren, the likes of Renault as well, could be under the pump from, say, Haas for Cindia, for example. Yeah, well, I guess for, for Haas, for once, they need to capitalise on it. And Alonso always does seem to to optimise his own results. You can see even with that power deficit, he's found a way until that, that first DNF he had of the season at Monaco and who knows it could be a circuit that uh, the slight power boost we saw on what they were experiencing in those uh, dark Honda days when they were just like hundreds of of kilowatts down you could say BHP was a quite a laughable sight over the years particularly on those straights at Montreal just how far they they languished so I wouldn't rule them out from from sneaking in of course Alonso at this point it's just the uh, the quote that he wheels out, I guess, of the garage for every weekend. It's just uh, been ad nauseum since 2015. Yeah, just the, uh, I guess, despondency that he has anyway uh, with all the sort of things. And I did write about him earlier in the week saying that perhaps um, F1 won't be his thing beyond the end of this year. But we'll talk more about, I guess, more about that anyway later. But speaking of Honda, um, they're bringing a big upgrade with them this weekend for Toro Rosso, which Red Bull will have a keen eye on as well. And we've talked about that earlier on in the year saying that that's going to be no secret is that um yeah red bull are going to have i guess in helmet marco's case a keen eye um on (laughs) sorry for the pun uh but on a keen eye on honda and to see what the progress that they make throughout the year given that their deal with renault is up and renault are putting pressure on them saying that oh you know you've got to make a decision sooner than later as far as who's going to supply you for engines next year so yeah big supply um well, big upgrade coming for Toro Rosso with the Honda package. What can they produce with that? You'd hope that at least one of the cars can score points or whatever you reckon. Um, a lot of pressure on Ben and Brendan Hartley once again. I guess talk coming in as we'll talk about a bit later anyway about his future and everything, which just given what we discussed two weeks ago before Monaco still just seems a bit unfair. But yeah, you know, it's Red Bull. It's their ruthless driver program. I guess they're not going to stop. Well, it doesn't matter what the the narrative might be, whether they've got no logical alternatives there. They they just continue to, to go off script and they're merciless. Yeah, merciless as you say. But um, yeah, more on Torosso and Red Bull later with the, the driver lineup and everything. But um, we just talked about and then before Haas and Force India, I guess the teams to watch to for the midfield. Uh, Sergio Perez has been on the podium here in the past. 2012 um, was that year for him with Sauber. I actually had thought last night um, perhaps he had scored a podium before Cindy here as well, but I think it was 2014, the year that I was considering, or 2015, but that was a year that he and Felipe Massa had that big um, crash towards the end of the race, which had denied him that, so we can wipe that away from the memory backs. But yeah, Sergio Perez has been quite handy, and so has Force India around the circuit. And I remember last year too, I guess, between the two teammates, Esteban Ocon and Perez, there was a bit of aggro here when they were fighting over fourth and fifth. So, you know, the cars run pretty good around here. It's just whether the teammates can deliver a result. Yeah, one of those many circuits they came to blows last season and that confidence boost from Ocon for P7, was it at uh, Monaco? That re- or P6, sorry, Gasly P7. So clearly it was good for him to really get his uh, account well and truly underway. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, can Ocon repeat that sort of feat uh, this time 
without any controversy with his teammate anyway. We'll just have to wait and see. And um, when it was the home race or quasi-home race for those two last time out in Monaco uh, for the Frenchies, we've got Lance Stroll, who's got his actual home race this weekend as well. So this was where last year he scored his first points in F1, as you remember. Could he repeat the same feat this year? You'd think it's a bit unlikely given the circumstances Williams are in and whatnot. Um, They were just hopeless in Monaco. We've documented it already last week, but um, yeah, just it just needs to be repeated every week how woeful they are. It just, yeah, on a power circuit too, in the past you could have given it to them, the fact that they've got that Mercedes uh, power unit under their belt, but the fact that, you know, even that this year hasn't been able to be a saving grace for them, I mean, what can we expect? Well, it must be said, Sorotkin had a pretty decent weekend up till that Sunday in qualifying. He was um, almost touch and go for a Q3 appearance there. A bit of traffic didn't really uh, help his cause. And then that grid penalty they had for the start of the race really nullified any chance he had of of getting in, in the hall there. But um, here and there, I guess, Stroll is probably slipped under the radar. But they've individually extracted as much as you could hope for, but that's coming off an extremely low base. Yeah, low base indeed, as you say, but uh, it's not the same story for Sauber, you could say, who've, I guess, probably one of their more fruitful tracks, you could say, is Canada, given the fact that they've, their one and only win that they've had in Formula One came back there in 2008 at the hands of Robert Kubica, who will actually return there for the first time um, as part of a Formula One team with Williams and whatnot this weekend, and then the Perez podium, as I said, in 2012. So, you know, given the fact that they've had a good run of points so far this season, I guess a bit unlucky there in Monaco with Charles Leclerc with that late clash uh, with Brendan Hartley. You know, could Ericsson or Marcus Ericsson or Leclerc end up in the points? You'd hope so. But yeah, they've got a car that could certainly do it if there is trouble ahead. Yeah, they've been edging closer on merit to being that P11, P12, and on the right weekend, they're, they're getting a bag of points. So they're a lot closer to the mix than they were heading to Melbourne. Yeah, so they've done pretty well, you could say, that far. But um, just overall, it's a hard one to predict at the moment, you could say, um, given the fact that Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton have had such good history around there you know the safe bet would be to say that oh yeah it's their weekend to own but um i don't want to put down the safe bet i want to say that you know we're going to have um another say bahrain or baku bahrain race or baku race or china race for example so what do you think yeah i'm not not too confident (laughs) to be honest Uh, it's easier said than done again we we get all the hype out that it's going to be an absolute cracker and ends up being a a procession so it might need some uh, weather elements there to, to be involved we haven't had that for really since 2011 on race day at canada so we're- whatever it is um well it's early in the morning regardless so at least we've got the monday off that's probably the best thing about it. and uh, mclaren coming out and denying that opportunity for the uh, 19 year old to be poached by red bull to race um as early as now citing the fact that wrong driver to to replace harley even though Really, he hasn't done much wrong in our eyes. I think it speaks more for McLaren that they're not giving Norris this opportunity on the caveat, apparently embarrassing to to Hartley to think, yeah, yeah, he hasn't scored a fourth or a seventh place, but he's had a little bit of, you could say, bad luck to at most races. He's been run into by his teammate as well, and he had Monaco where he was running just outside the points, and 
completely respectable. Like, you can't ask for much more than that. He's clearly not a patch on Gasly, but it just seems as though he's... Very- uh, Gasly had Surrey in Bahrain sort of blew things out of perspective here anyway with the, the fourth that he scored. Like, it wasn't something that on pure pace alone that it happened. It was due to all that as well. Perhaps, you know, it's it's quite key to have him working on side uh, with Honda, then with Pirelli as well, to, to try and get the best out of what could be uh, the every time you hear about it. It's just, you have to shake your head, not only for the, not the national, I won't say nationalistic, but you know, we, we, yeah, well, I hope that's not the case anyway. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we'll move it on. We've talked a bit about that anyway, but um, yeah, a lot of other news to get through, but um, 19, oh, sorry, 18-inch tyres, perhaps back on the cards for the future. I don't even remember. It was like a distant memory seeing the concept drawing of these or while well, they were shown off in Monaco a few years ago anyway um, under the Bernie Eccleston regime, but um, Liberty Media investigating the possibility of introducing them in 2021. Um, as part of the revamp regulations, and um, I guess it was we were a bit. I was a bit indifferent to them anyway when we saw them the first time a couple of years ago under the Eccleston regime. But um, yeah, you know they're talking about it again. You really keen seeing him back in, or? Oh, Liberty has its way of promoting it, and it was pretty much just cut and and dry around on a demo. Um, I think it was a Lotus back then around Silverstone. Didn't really get much hype, and I'm sure if they can work it into the future regulations and it's not just tacked on there for the aesthetic then it could have a place. Yeah, it could do. So, you know, whether they confirm it or not remains to be seen, but they're talking about it as part of their little um, plans for 2021. We'll see what happens. Uh, Force India talked about them. Could be a big weekend for them anyway, results-wise on track. But um, we heard last week, late last week that is, that um, Vijay Malia is uh, out as the Force India board of di- one of the board of directors or whatever. So he's resigned at that um, level, although he still remains as team boss, which is rather concerning given the circumstances that he is in um, as far as uh, his legal battle is concerned and everything. And the team itself still, I guess, is not really talked about much, but yeah, the team still very much in um, limbo as far as what their future looks like as well. So I guess it is a step in a positive direction with uh, Malia stepping down as that... Um, director off their board but yeah still the fact that you know he's uh, got that position as team boss even though he's unable to do much really from where he is at the moment um speaks volumes yeah bob fernley and not miles off now are there they're um really by by default they're the ones that are running the ship and vj surfaces uh one and only occasion a year from his little uh extradition free zone in the uk so we can expect his head to bob up again in a couple of weeks at silverstone it is already a couple of weeks i thought it was almost a month away oh well anyway let it come uh so yeah that's that's for cindia so we'll step away a little bit from f1 anyway now with uh, fernando alonso um having hopped over to le mans last weekend for that um pre-race test that they had he was the fastest um with no doubt of course toyota being the only hybrid contender in that um lmp1 category but other news around that you know matt campbell in the gte am class uh, the aussie 
uh, racing for Porsche. He was fastest too in the GTEM category. So that was really good to see too. So, you know, as much as we're looking forward to Canada this weekend, I guess uh, next weekend, the 24 Hours of Le Mans is going to be a big one too. And just the, the names you've got content, contesting it this year. You've got Alonso there. You've got Jensen Button racing for SMP, who's also in LMP1 as well. Then you've got uh, Juan Pablo Montoya lining up for United Autosports as well there. And then I think there's Guido Vandergaard, Vitaly Petrov, and just a host of XF1 drivers. And then a um, couple of Aussies in the field, Matt Campbell in the GTM category, and Alex Davison too as well, lining up in a Porsche for uh, GTEM. So it's just, yeah, like, wow, you know, it's going to be a big race, you could say. Oh, absolutely. And I guess the comings and goings of the the factory teams over the past couple of seasons it's probably hit that top end prestige nevertheless um there's plenty going on through through those lower uh, categories into um really i guess Porsche in the the GT that's where the the priority lies now and for for Matt Campbell he's really well equipped to have line honors in that field and as for um LMP1 all the hype will be around whether Alonso can really <laughs> avenge what has been a, a very barren five years and Toyota they've got their own point to prove even <laughs> though you would think that they've got no one up against them yeah exactly it's 24 hours is different to a six hour race there's a lot to to come into it and everything but going back to Porsche quickly with their GT cars I find it cool that this year they're paying tribute to some of their retro liveries as well their two GTE or well their well two of their GTE pro cars or whatever are uh, paying tribute to old liveries one of them have got that old Rothmans livery on the car and then of course um, I think they're the Porsche pig livery as well features this time around so uh, really good to see that they're doing that and yeah quite sad that we don't have Porsche in the LMP1 this year they're, they've won the last three 24 hours of Le Mans outright so yeah you know the ball is in Toyota's court now, given that there's no other hybrid contenders on hand. But we'll have more for you on the more next week anyway to preview the race ahead um, with uh, the full 24 hours coming up next time round. Um, we'll go over across the Atlantic a bit early with the IndyCar action. And yeah, straight after the Indy 500, the guys got back in action at Detroit and whatnot. Not for one race, but for two races. So uh, we had... Um, uh, Scott Dixon win the first race that is um, on the Saturday and then Sunday was the big action and whatnot and a late mistake cost Alexander Rossi the win there um, lock up and uh, Ryan Hunter Ray ended up winning the the race the first time he's won in IndyCar for about three years now so good result for him but um, a lot of criticism around Alexander Rossi after that one the fact that yeah, he blew the championship lead there and uh, could be a deciding weekend for him as far as uh, title credentials are concerned. Yeah, it was a really important one for a lot of those contenders backing up from from Indy. It's hard to believe that after that um, month of May concept where it's just all systems go really every day leading up to Indianapolis and that um, the race they have around the the inner circuit immediately before it and then they just move on as though it never happened and the guys who really bombed out at Indy they had to get back on the board and then Will Powers obviously right in the hunt after that win and he had a pretty consistent weekend as well at Detroit so he's he's looking pretty good after probably a couple of 
quite a season since that first title he had, I think, in 2014. Yeah, so those double points, obviously, after Indy would have helped him for sure. And then, of course, winning the weekend beforehand as well on the um, the Grand Prix circuit. But, uh, yeah, it'll be pretty tight going to the end. So we'll pay a bit of attention there with um, eyes on Will Power, of course, and Alexander Rossi, too, being the uh, guy fresh out of F1 as well let's see if he can get himself back into the title hunt too but um we had a lot of MotoGP news over the weekend and just leading into this week too I mean given the fact that we had a race in Mugello but uh, it was almost overshadowed by all the silly season news and um we heard unfortunately that Danny Pedrosa has cut ties or well rather HRC the Honda Racing Corporation have cut ties with Danny Pedrosa um saying that at the end of this year that their relationship will be no more a relationship which has spanned many years um which is quite sad in a way given that they've uh, been through a lot together ultimately no championship in the premier class for Pedrosa but um perhaps you know his little um path in a in MotoGP will lead towards a satellite Yamaha ride for next year we've heard uh, that perhaps Petronas and uh, Monster Energy will come together to take up that satellite entry that's vacated by Tech 3 uh, in conjunction with the Mark VDS team who's under some team uh, turmoil at the moment with the owners and whatnot but um, more importantly I guess the fact that that left that big seat at Repsol Honda open and the big seat has been filled by Jorge Lorenzo has been filled by Jorge Lorenzo who um, won his first race for Ducati over the weekend at Mugello significant win but ultimately it was not enough to save his bacon there at the factory Ducati team and now he's signed a two-year deal with the Repsol Honda team to partner Mark Marquez of all people that's going to be a big one yeah I don't think anyone would have seen this a couple of weeks ago just the the way that it came together was quite whirlwind and Lorenzo finally seeming to be comfortable on that Desmo Deciti, however you pronounce it. I think uh, whether it's more uh, the engineers taking on his his feedback or Lorenzo finally coming to grips with the unique machinery that so few have tamed, it, it ultimately did come together for him at Mugello, but futile for the future relationship there, and obviously that uh, was tied together. This behind the scenes, who knows how long there'd been negotiations with Lorenzo and Honda, and that talk that he would be set for that uh, satellite Yamaha leading in, and this one really, I think, blindsided a few. They hadn't put uh, two and two together until essentially it was announced. Well, apparently it was done seven days ago almost, which is pretty surprising, you could say, and the article that I wrote last week had indicated that, you know, Honda would extend Danny Pedrosa for at least another year which was uh, pretty blindsiding in my perspective anyway and I thought that Lorenzo would be the one who ends up on that satellite Yamaha for next year given the circumstances so yeah it's a it's a big piece to have been played in the silly season for MotoGP but I guess more so is the fact that we get to see Lorenzo line up with Marquez last year and we know how um, fractious that relationship was with Valentino Rossi on the same team and everything so yeah with Mark Marquez who's just as relentless as Rossi you could say and the fact that he's considerably younger too than Lorenzo as well I guess you know it's going to be a big challenge for Lorenzo coming into that team. Could be the best thing that happens to Marquez not that he's complacent but Pedros has hardly he- held a candle to him in recent seasons and I guess for Marquez as far as he's 
legacy is concerned, this will be a true benchmark. If Lorenzo's on song as he was in his peak Yamaha days, and then as well that talk of maybe in the future that Marquez will also look at flying the nest himself, perhaps that that idea of a KTM seat from 2021 or, or beyond, it's all really only going to enhance his reputation if he can overcome these hurdles rather than being in this very similar environment for his entire career. Yeah, well, you know, that talk continues, I guess, even though that the grid is almost locked in for next year, whether Marquez will fly the coup, as you say. But, um, you know, for what it is, it'll be an interesting battle uh, um, regardless between those two guys next year. And Lorenzo, I guess, with the way he won in Mugello over the weekend, it was a dominant win, I guess, starting from second on the grid. And he sort of reminded everyone that this is the this is the rider that he is and this is how dominant he can be but the fact that he's been missing for a year and a half um, not due to the not because of the bike's fault let's say perhaps because of his own reluctance to adapt to adapt to that bike in particular which is as you say has been quite challenging and even Valentino Rossi couldn't get a hold of it um, is quite telling so you know the fact that Lorenzo took that long to adapt to the to the Ducati can he adapt to the Honda quicker? We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, well, clearly he's going to be putting a lot of energy into into really hitting the ground running there for next season. Doesn't want to be sacrificing more time really in the his um his prime. You could say he's whittling away years, just as Rossi did quite frustratingly during that tenure at. Ducati and he'll be really hoping this is a, a gamble which pays off yeah given the fact that he's 31 now and um, perhaps you know I f- still can see him winning another title in his career now that um, he's going to Honda but it just dep- it just depends on circumstances and Marquez just one of those once in a generation type riders and uh, yeah the fact that Lorenzo when he was alongside Rossi was able to beat him and Rossi is one of those once in a generation types too can he do it again it just remains to be seen but anyway we'll talk more MotoGP another time and uh, yeah we've still got a 2018 championship to see out before we can look forward to 2019 when we see these guys at their new teams and quick shout out anyway with um, Ducati uh, choosing Danilo Pedrucci to uh, to replace sorry um, Jorge Lorenzo alongside Davizioso and uh, Jack Miller staying at Pramac but getting that upgrade to the um, the GP19 bike anyway so he'll still uh, remain where he is but he'll have uh on par technology as the guys do at the factory team so a good opportunity anyway for him and i guess with a year old machinery that he's had this year the gp18 sorry gp17 bike he's still done pretty well given the fact that um he's had a pole position he's scored top 10 finishes but not been on the podium like petrucci has on that um current spec bike yeah he's clearly building and there's no point rushing his development he's probably still another good two to three years away from from entering that window and who knows which opportunities might be there might even yet be at honda in 2021 if marquez were to to move on and he was on that trajectory before that move um to um ducati for this season so i think that um clearly um he's showing a lot of potential and i guess for australians after mcdoan and casey stoner they're used to um, their local um, contender delivering ultimately. Yeah, exactly. We've got a lot to look forward to in the 
MotoGP than we do F1, who we haven't had a world champion since 1980 at this stage. Um, but still, we're looking forward to what Dan Ricciardo can produce in the future, as we are with Jack Miller. Um, but yeah, let's move away from motorsport now for the final part of this podcast anyway, and let's go back to hit the post as we did last week with our preview for State of Origin. But um, yeah, here we are, 24 hours or just under 24 hours after the first game at the MCG. Our reaction to what happened... 22 to 12 scoreline at the end with the new look blues defeating the maroons um yeah you know is this it you know we saw this at the start of last year's series where new south wales upset the maroons and whatnot but this year could it be different given the fact that we've got a fresh new south wales side we've got a new coach a new culture and everything just everything about the way the blues played last night just seemed like they're here to right the wrongs of yesteryear. Yeah, it must be said, Queensland, considering all that talk of being in crisis, they they really acquitted themselves quite quite admirably to, to only go down by 10 points at the lead they took early on into that second half. It really suggested that resilience, which they're renowned for in defending, could have, again, proven itself but I think it was quite an unsurprising outcome with New South Wales just their younger legs they had that that run there and they really overwhelmed the Maroons in the final 20 minutes or so and the entire um, feel when you look in the, the dressing rooms a laid-back vibe there with Brad Fittler who, who's really a gone and gotten rid of all that formalities in almost a street where you could argue <laughs> very very I, relaxed i was surprised i was surprised he didn't pull out the old vape there as well <laughs> that he just started uh, smoking away with the vape there um in the dressing rooms the fact that they were actually um uh, walking to the ground from their hotel as well as opposed to taking the traditional team bus and everything as well you know saying that they're going to do it in bare feet as well it's just like wow you know freddie's gone full hipster for this one and uh given that it well instilled that culture within the team too which seems good and i guess just the way that they've gone about things this year you know the fact that they've made it more about the team as far as um being selfish and everything like you've seen the plays in the past of i'm not going to name names here but um you know who the obvious um culprits are but uh yeah it's been so good to see and i guess being the maroons supporters that we are the fact that new south wales won there it's i guess if you still feel good about it in the end because you feel like this team that have actually worked towards a win have uh, rightly won in the end oh absolutely it really wasn't one of those outcomes where you go away disappointed at all it was a Decent spectacle. It probably didn't have the grandstand finish that uh, everyone expects these days, but it's shown that going to game two, there's still plenty to play for. And for for Queensland, you can't rule them out really until they've been really whitewashed. And for New South Wales, they'll be really looking for a chance to to prove this is the start of their era rather than, um, I guess, a continuation of, of the last few years when. It's always been speculated, but Queensland's just found a way. Yeah, exactly. So four tries versus two in the end was um, the score and everything. And the guys who scored for New South Wales, Josh Adokar, Tom Trebojevic, Latrell Mitchell, James Tedesco, all very fast players. And I guess that's what the um, hype was heading into that game, that those 
uh, buck five or whatever would be the the speedsters and compared to Queensland that they just look a whole lot faster and then I remember uh, in discussion with you last night some of the figures that these guys were posting as far as top speeds were concerned you were saying that that's what you know you could only dream of reaching as a marathon runner I'm like geez you're fast but if these are posting these guys are putting these figures up and you're impressed and wow it must be considerably beyond what you're doing as well yes. so 35 kilometers 30, an hour in a marathon yeah some 30, 35 <laughs> kilometers 36 kilometers 36.1 was probably the fastest i think i saw from one of those guys so yeah you know these guys with their fresh legs just on it you could say all night and uh the experience there of james maloney too in uh, the 5-8 position um guiding this young team as well 11 debutants and then seeing uh, youngsters like uh, well not really youngsters but yeah debutant in damien cook as well um his smarts coming out the other backs as well likes of tom Draboyevich, um then tedesco even though he's uh, not on debut but um he latrell mitchell james roberts and all those guys they just work so well in tandem and Damien Cook, like we talk a lot about Cameron Smith off air and whatnot when we talk about rugby league, but Damien Cook was amazing. He's probably been one of my favourite players all year to watch anyway in rugby league. That is um, for the South Sydney Rabbitohs, not not only because he's been giving me a lot of juicy points in Supercoach, but um, yeah, the fact that he's just been such a handy player, such a smart player. So finally to see him get his origin opportunity, it's been quite satisfying, I guess, that outcome. Yeah, you can see it's a really well-constructed team and um, they've been all chosen for the the right job rather than, I guess, being being seen, I guess, um, the previous generation where they were just um, all, a, I guess you could say, a bunch of, of mates there who, who probably took, um, you know, reputations and that off the field more seriously than getting the job done on the field. Yeah, exactly. None of them really want to go to the Lennox Hotel and hang out with each other like uh, Josh Dugan and Blake Ferguson did and whatnot. But um, going over to Queensland anyway, I mean, it was quite early on. You could see that they were becoming a bit fatigued in the first half as well. I guess if it wasn't for that steal from Valentine Holmes in the latter part of that first half um, and uh, that try that he did end up scoring with that steal. It was a phenomenal run, by the way. Um, perhaps we might not have seen them still in the competition after half time. So it was uh, two points at half time, and then as soon as we got back into play, uh, Dane Gagai came with a good try as well um, to lead. But then after that, New South Wales just ran away with the affair and um, ended up uh, extending it to a 10 point lead before the end of the break. And then I think there was a few more opportunities at the end end of the game but they were denied by the bunker and everything but um you know at this stage given that we're Queensland are one down in the series two games to go do they start panicking or is it just um a case of let's brace ourselves next game as we did last year we'll come back stronger we'll have a few extra players in the squad as well Billy Slater set to return obviously he had to miss this one due to injury talk there of Matt Scott perhaps being brought back into the fold too because of his experience not that his club form for the Cowboys unfortunately hasn't been that great but um, yeah you know in place perhaps of a Cohen Hess or something as well who hasn't been in great form himself but um, yeah just Matt Scott bringing the experience in um, you know what do Queensland do here? I don't think I'll be panicking at all they've been 
so well versed with being down one nil probably at least half the times over the past what thirteen years they've they've dropped that first game and and turned it round. Twenty fourteen, indeed, New South Wales got the job done with the first two two games. The the one time they they did break through since two thousand and five. So I think that. Uh, Queensland until they're completely um, blown off the field. There's no way they're going to be being sucked into this crisis talk. And and considering how well they they did prove themselves with um, all that lead in, which sounded quite horrific, with uh, players falling like flies and players just retiring weeks out from the first game. I think that that they've shown that they've handled the adverse situations pretty well over the course. Yeah, it wasn't the blowout that we're all expecting still, so I think it'll be pretty close anyway come the next game. So, and Queensland traditionally haven't gone too well at the MCG having lost uh, now four of the five contests that they've had here. But anyway, um not long to wait anyway till the second origin, uh, two, two weekends it is, and then I think it's the weekend of the French Grand Prix for us in F1 land that we'll see um, the uh, Maroons and the Blues back in action, so that'll be an exciting contest building up to the French Grand Prix as well to watch on a Sunday evening, but um, yeah, that's origin for you, that's hit the post for you, and also that's hit the apex this week as well, so thanks very much for joining in, we'll enjoy the Canadian Grand Prix this week. Weekend. We'll have, I'm sure, plenty to talk about come uh, seven days' time when we wrap up the race and uh, look ahead to 24 hours of Le Mans too. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll see you guys next time. Till then. <laughs>